Hey, Beth, I have a story for you. It has a whole lot of brotherly love, a spiritual movement, and a search to fill the hole that was left behind. It's a misconnection. Welcome to Misconnections. We are both Elizabeth. I'm Elizabeth Via, aka Lizzie. And I'm Elizabeth Wyndham, aka Beth. Misconnections is a podcast that explores the longing to connect and the circumstances that stand in our way. Each episode will bring a true story of a misconnection and an expert guest to help us unpack it so that we can all get better at making real, meaningful connections that feel good to us. That's why we started this show. After a series of our own misconnections in dating, friendships, and family relationships, we decided to get some help. So, Beth, are you ready to hear this misconnection story? Brotherly love in a spiritual movement has piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Here is the story. I don't remember meeting you because that's just how it is with big brothers. They're just always there until I guess they're not. At three and a half years apart, we were that perfect sibling age difference. In high school, I was a freshman, You were a senior, and that's when our brotherhood blossomed into a deep and true friendship, and you seemed genuinely excited to have me in your life in this new way. You had always been a great big brother, but now you'd become more than that. You were my best friend. I adored you. Not only were you a thoughtful confidant and my primary support system, you were also so much fun. We navigated so much life together in those years as co-conspirators, like when we threw our first and only house party together while mom and dad were out of town. We blended our friend groups, partied like equals, and you helped me navigate my first serious relationship. You were there for me every step of the way. I loved it. Many of my most formative and favorite memories involve you. When I visited you in college, you'd take me under your wing, squiring me throughout campus, getting me into parties, showing me the ropes. The first time I got drunk was when I visited you as a high schooler over Halloween weekend. I so clearly remember how comfortable I felt being around you and your college friends. Welcomed into your world because everyone loved you so much and I was your brother. As we got older, Whenever one of us visited the other, our respective friend groups would fawn over how similar we were, and yet how we still had our own individual flair. Everyone loved both of us as individuals, and when we were together, we made each other better. Our energy was infectious. Our relationship only grew stronger when we were both living in New York, figuring out what we wanted the rest of our lives to look like. You built me up and gave me strength, but also gave me permission to be vulnerable and unsure, and I did the same for you. You never made me feel like I was a burden in these moments. You wanted to listen, you asked me all the right questions, and you helped me work through whatever I was struggling with. Since I had you, I approached the rest of my friendships and relationships in a different way. I didn't need anyone else to show up for me in tough times because you already had. And honestly, I didn't even know how to ask for help beyond you. So much of who I was and so much of who I still am is because I am your brother. 
My sense of self was molded by my relationship to you in those early years. We created this sort of mutual identity that we shared when we were together. Of course we had our differences, and you in particular had your struggles, even back then. You were charismatic and driven, but you were constantly searching for your purpose, and for meaning, and for a community. You were never fully comfortable in any of the spaces you navigated on a regular basis, so you kept searching. I saw the constant struggle, but never thought it would lead to where you are now. You were the first person in my life to openly talk about your mental health struggles, and you were committed to trying different approaches in order to solve them. When you moved to New Orleans to get your master's, it was the first time we weren't close enough to be enmeshed in each other's day-to-day -day lives, and that's when your interest in spirituality gained momentum. With each of my visits over the course of those three years, things became progressively off with you, with us, with everyone. Where you were once engaged and enthusiastic, you were now increasingly distant and disinterested. Where you were once curious and thoughtful, you were now disconnected and apathetic. I lost you over time, like coffee dripping through a Chemex. Glimmers of the old you, the real you, would pop up here and there and give me false hope. Like the time you visited me in Brooklyn while in town for a work conference. We crawled up to the roof of my apartment and talked into the night for hours while looking out over the skyline. You were the same old you, my brother, my best friend, the you that I loved. I was relieved, believing that you weren't as far gone as I'd thought. But the next time I saw you, you were gone. We were on the Cape, the family's happy place for decades, and you told us you weren't coming to our cousin's wedding that spring. Considering our small and tightly knit extended family, this decision was significant. You didn't give any reasoning or any excuse, just an unfeeling, I'm not going, and that was that. I was overwhelmed with sadness and then with anger. I knew there was a turning point where I could feel the last few pieces of you slipping through my fingers. Every day that you drifted further and further away, I was more and more heartbroken, and my sadness and anger continued to mount. Logically, I knew you had been deeply unhappy and that you were running towards something that made you feel better, but that didn't make it any easier. And I can pinpoint the exact moment you disappeared. It was 2015, back in New Orleans for your graduation. We were standing outside that famous hot dog spot on Frenchman Street, and you told us you were moving to California to officially join the spiritual movement. It was the cult. It would take years for us to fully accept that you were joining a cult and to say that word out loud. I remember the blood draining out of mom's face as we stood there. This was the end of our family of five as we knew it. We all knew we were never going to be the same after that. I knew I was never going to be the same after that. The contrast of who you'd become to who you had been eats me up inside. You went from welcoming me into every aspect of your life to shutting me, our family, and our countless mutual friends out in every way. We went from growing our lives together in tandem, from being there for each other through the highs and the lows, to exchanging bland texts on each other's birthdays like distant acquaintances. I know I'll never be able to understand how much you struggled, 
People often don't join cults knowingly. They join something that makes them feel good, that gives them purpose, that gives them community. But I'm devastated that you couldn't find what you needed with me and with everyone else who cares about you. And what about me? Who am I without my big brother? With you in my corner, I never needed anyone else to show up for me emotionally, so once you left, I felt lost. It all came to a head when I moved across the country and got divorced. I needed you then more than ever. I had plenty of people who loved me, other family members, my close friends from high school and college, but no one could meet the moment for me the way you would have. I kept getting let down and I kept getting frustrated by the fact that no one was there for me in the way that I needed them to be, despite their best efforts. I realized that in all my male friendships specifically, I was always the strong one, the listener, the advice giver, the one who cared. I was their version of you. And during the divorce, I struggled in a way I never had before. And all I wanted was to pick up the phone and talk to you about it. But instead, I had conversations with the people that were still in my life, and it just wasn't enough. I addressed my feelings head on and had a series of conversations with my closest confidants about what I needed from them as friends, how I needed them to take an interest, to ask me questions, and just be more for me. But even after naming exactly what I wanted, they were unable to be that for me, to be you for me. While I know that no one will ever be you, I want my other male friendships to grow with me and to feel more equitable. I just don't want to have to spoon feed exactly what I need from my friends to them. It shouldn't have to be this hard. With you, it was always easy. I love that I never had to tell you what I needed. You just already knew and had done it. I will never stop missing you. I miss you in the mundane day-to-day -day moments, having a meal together, watching a baseball game together, and I miss you in the big marquee moments, talking through career moves, sharing the joy of my new West Coast life with you, you getting to know my wonderful partner. I miss your heart and your care and how you saw me in a way that no one else ever did. Although we live only 60 miles from each other in California, I haven't seen you in nearly four years. It breaks my heart that it's been so long and I will never get over that our family of five is now a family of four. The hole you left in each of us is ever-present, and it's something that we carry with us every single day. I self-advocate better now, voicing what I expect from others, and moving on from relationships that don't serve me. And I will continue to seek out deep and meaningful connections with others, despite knowing none will ever be what I shared with you, my big brother. What did you think? How did you feel? This story, every time I listen to it, <laughs> it makes me um, want to cry. I feel sadness and tenderness for the storyteller. Relationships where you can feel safe to be, like the all-encompassing be, vulnerable, playful, moody, joyful, are essential, regardless whether they're with family or friends. My heart feels deeply for the storyteller sharing the experience of having this type of relationship 
and then the loss of it and then working to have it again. You know, there's just that added layer because it's around male friendships. So I really respect the storyteller for being so vulnerable with us and telling us his experience. What about you, Lizzie? Yeah, I think I, you know, really initially on like a sibling level, like if we're really lucky, we can have automatic connection with the people that we're raised with in our homes. And, you know, you can hear the meaning that that has in the storyteller's life and the heartbreak that it brings over time as their relationship changes. Mm -hmm. And then also just, you know, you can talk about how hard it is to make friends as an adult. I think the next layer of that is really what this storyteller is talking about, which is like, if you're not socialized to have meaningful, intimate, vulnerable friendships that go beyond just spending time with each other, like how do you do that? And that feeling of like a lot of false starts or really trying hard for that and asking for that and then feeling like that's just not possible for you with those friendships. I think specifically what we're hearing from him is as a man in the world and how are they raised to, you know, have that skill set and access and permission and all of those things. So the struggle for close male friendship in this story sent me down a rabbit hole of researching uh, male friendships, emotional intimacy. And after reading article after article titled something like, why is it so hard for men to make close friends? It's safe to say that our storyteller isn't the only one struggling with this. For sure. So for the next part of the episode, we're going to bring in a special guest who is far more qualified to talk about this subject than we are, and she's going to help us unpack it. I'm ready for it. (laughs) So Dr. Niobe Wei is an internationally recognized professor of developmental psychology, the founder of the Project for the Advancement of Our Common Humanity at NYU, and the director of the Science of Human Connection Lab. She's also a principal investigator of The Listening Project, a school-based curriculum that was created to address the global crisis of connection, loneliness, depression, anxiety, suicide, hate crimes, mass violence, by fostering the practice of listening with curiosity in schools, workplaces, and homes. Dr. Wei's work focuses on social and emotional development, how cultural ideologies shape child development and families in the U.S. and China, and on how to build a more just and humane world. Her work, for which she is regularly featured in the media, integrates the theoretical, empirical, and applied work she has developed over three decades on the intersection of culture, context, micro and macro, human development, and well-being. Her latest co-edited book is The Crisis of Connection, Its Roots, Consequences, and Solutions. Dr. Wei has authored or co-authored nearly 100 journal articles and books, including Deep Secrets, Boys' Friendships, and The Crisis of Connection which was the inspiration for Close, a movie that won the Grand Prix Award at Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Mm. Her newest book is Rebels with a Cause, Reimagining Boys, Ourselves, and Our Culture. She received her bachelor's from UC Berkeley, her doctorate from Harvard, and was an NIMH postdoctoral fellow at Yale in the psychology department. Also, when you Google this subject, she's like the first five results. (laughs) 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 So... (laughs) When I was it's so pathetic. I actually <laughs> want to talk about that. I want to talk about why that is. Because I'm still the only one saying what I'm saying based on research. Yeah. And so we got to talk about that. Why am I still 10 years later? That book came out 10 years later, Deep Secrets. I'm talking about with research. 
yeah. you know, who was doing research on these these problems that we were all having, but boys and men in particular. So I welcome mm-hmm. this conversation. Thank you for having me here. We are so grateful to have you here. Like mm-hmm. dream guest for us, <laughs> literally. <laughs> We usually have to go to like, you know, try to keep scrolling, but mm-hmm. actually top five results so you reached out and we're so, so <laughs> thrilled that you're here to join us today. And we have so many questions for you, but before we get into all those questions, we'd love to yeah. hear about what were you thinking and feeling as you were listening to this story? First of all, I want to say a couple obvious things, but we f- sometimes forget because we focus on the difficulty of listening to the story, because in many ways I resonated with both of your reactions. It is a very sad story. And many of us have a version of that in our own stories. So it's not just boys and men. So I think a lot of us resonate with that loss with someone who we loved and who we felt loved us and the disconnection that happened. So I I resonated with the sadness, but I wanna underscore a part of what he's saying that we forget sometimes. First of all, He was incredibly lucky and his brother was incredibly lucky to have that relationship in the first place. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many young boys and young girls too, but boys do struggle more than girls in this capacity, do not have those kinds of relationships with their brothers, certainly not, but also with their friends, with nobody. So the fact that he started off life with that nourishing relationship and the brother did as well is really speaking in some ways to our human capacity to have those relationships. So he was lucky to have them. We're all lucky to have them when we have them in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I just want to underscore for your listeners that that was just proving my point, which is that boys and men have the same relational, emotional intelligence and capacities as all other people, regardless of their gender identities. So the point is we have to stop thinking that anybody who identifies in a feminine way, anybody, is somehow more talented, right, in the relational skills and emotional skills than anyone who identifies in a masculine way. Okay, so we have to stop that. We all are born with the same capacities, the same yearnings for connection. I've learned that from almost now 40 years of research with boys and men and also people of all different identities, not just boys and men that we have that human, not only the desire, which is so obvious in his letter and is obvious in all the data, everybody, you know, all my students, are you kidding me? I teach a hundred undergraduates at NYU a semester. So I've taught, you know, probably thousands of students by now. It's evident in their desire. But to me, what's most striking about that letter really is the implicit and explicit emotional and relational intelligence Mm -hmm. in that letter. Mm -hmm. He knows what it means to feel listened to, He knows what it feels like to listen. He said he was a good friend to his friends. He identifies the loss in a very intelligent way, right? He talks about it in terms of what it made him feel. So I would say I responded with the sadness, but I also responded with the sense of gratification of him showing us that those skills are just natural and everybody has Mm. them. And everybody has the yearning for close connection and it's not gendered. And I want to push on the gender thing because it really isn't at this point, it's not about even people who identify with being a girl or a woman. It's people who identify with being feminine are seen as more talented in those ways. And it's just bullshit. It's bullshit. We make feeling into a feminine thing and thinking into a masculine thing. Thinking and feeling is a human thing. 
And we can't think without feeling and we can't feel without thinking. So it is totally inhuman that we make it feminine to feel and we make it masculine to think. The other thing I wanted to say is that there were very specific things he said that revealed the intelligence. And I would like to specify. One thing he said, which we're now defining relational intelligence in this way, is the curiosity. He said his brother was curious. Mm -hmm. When he talked about being a caretaker of his own friends, the implicit thing of caring for somebody else, the curiosity that is necessary to care about somebody else. And this is the kicker. To feel cared for, you have to feel the other person is curious about you. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, as he said in his letter, I mean, it was a very informative letter. <laughs> as he said in his letter, it really was. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't like to have to tell them what to ask. Yeah, I want them to just naturally ask. That's a five-year-old capacity, that curiosity, that sense of wonder. It's what's going on and being able to do that. And he recognized that in his brother, yeah. right? He was curious in the previous form of himself. Well, we really appreciate your feedback about what you heard in this story. And I agree with you. Like, our storyteller was very emotionally intelligent and obviously has done the work to figure out what he needs in relationships. But as you know, not everybody is that way. And I'd love to go from the micro to kind of like the macro, the bird's eye view of, you know, Let's understand the big reasons behind this common challenge of lack of connection within platonic relationships where people are desiring more but don't necessarily know how to communicate that or figure that out. Obviously, our conversation is going to be expanded beyond just one gender. But, you know, the catchphrase of the male friendship recession is like (laughs) all over the news when you're searching male friendship. So, you know, we can expand upon that. There is a general friendship recession happening through us struggling to connect. And I'd love to kind of talk about what that means and what are those bigger challenges. Yeah, so I'm going to pull the microscope way out. I'm going to be <laughs> yes, really please. macro, which you have to do because in order to see it as not just, I, I'm going to speak about boys and men for sure, sure. But in order to not see it just as a boys and men thing, you have to pull the microscope out really far. And so the the fact of the matter is we live in a, what I'm calling in my new book, boy culture. For those who are listening and not watching, I'm putting quotations around the word boy uh, because it's not a real boy. It's a stereotype of a boy. And in that stereotype of the boy is the all hard. They just want to have sex and be stoic and play sports. And they don't give a shit about relationships and emotional sensitivity. Well, what we learn in almost 40 years of research and what we know from our brothers and our all the boys and men we have in our lives that that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, it's not that girls don't think, girls think, boys feel too. Yeah. And so the idea is that we have this culture that basically is a boy culture, which means boys and men suffer from it the most, which they're supposed to adhere to a notion of what is a man, which is based on a boy culture notion of being strong, manly, not having emotions, privileging stoicism, thinking over feeling, stoicism over vulnerability, self over other. But this is the kicker, okay? It's not just affecting boys and men. Yeah. Because it's coming from a patriarchal culture, if I can speak ideology on this podcast, 
It's coming from a patriarchal culture that privileges the hard over the soft, not just men over women, mm -hmm. uh, but actually all what we've deemed hard, because remember, they're not really hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, all qualities have a hard and soft par part to them, but I'm just saying we've, we've identified them as hard and we've identified the self independence as sort of more valuable than interdependence. So we value everything we see as more masculine over everything we see as more feminine. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and that gets us into trouble because we are naturally so-called masculine and feminine. We're hard and soft, right? We have two sides to ourselves. So if we're in a culture that only values the so-called masculine side of ourselves, that's gonna obviously affect boys and men more because they're supposed to be literally masculine. Mm -hmm. But it's also gonna affect girls and women to a lesser degree in that capacity. So then if we raise our children, and I'm answering your question, I promise you. <laughs> if we raise our boys and men to value one half of their humanity over the other, to value thinking over feeling, self over relationships, stoicism over vulnerability, and even when we get into emotions, this is fascinating to me in the emotion research, you can ask me about it, emotional regulation over emotional sensitivity. I mean, mm. in the whole field of emotions now in psychology, we're obsessed with emotional regulation. That's about controlling emotion. That's a very masculine kind of thing. Control mm. your emotions. It's not about nurturing emotional sensitivity to other people, which is just as fundamental to our capacity. So if we don't value the soft sides and we don't nurture it, why are we surprised yeah. that then boys and men grow up that they grow up suffering. Yeah. I mean, duh. If we don't value the soft sides of ourselves that are essential for connection, not just a nice addendum to connection, we can't have connection without sensitivity, the ability to listen with curiosity, all the soft things, you know, not just vulnerability, actually just literally the ability to listen with curiosity. We feminize that. We feminized interpersonal curiosity as a sort of gossip thing, which is bizarre to me because it has <laughs> nothing to do with gossip. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So if we raise boys and men to be half human and then they grow up to suffer, you know, depression, disconnection, it's like it's the culture dummy. Yeah. And in a culture that tries to privilege and why I say boy culture rather than man culture it's because it's fundamentally immature, meaning mm -hmm. it's about valuing money over people, uh, fun over responsibility, hanging out with the dudes rather than talking meaningfully, right? It's, it's all this sort of stereotype of what a boy wants, you know, sex over relationships. I mean, it's all a stereotype. I want to make clear that people are getting me is I'm not saying, I'm really counting this in our culture. The toxic message really is is that boys are somehow naturally a male stereotype. Mm -hmm. That is what's getting in the way. We gotta stop that conversation. Toxic masculinity, I don't love the phrase, but the reason is, is I oftentimes think it suggests that men are naturally assholes. Mm -hmm. yeah. That belief that men are actually naturally assholes mm -hmm. is, is what gets in the way of all our conversations of nurturing a full human in the form of a boy or a man or whatever their identities are. So I know I, I just gave you a mouthful, but I, I just think, <laughs> We have to understand it's a whole culture. The second thing, we're in a culture that doesn't even value friendships, by the way. Yeah. So we think romantic relationships are key. We do not value friendships. We say we do. It's total bullshit. Even the fact that we have the label single. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. It doesn't even make any sense. If you're not in a romantic partner, you're single? Right. What? Yeah. Yeah. Like you're surrounded by your community. My friend polyamorous. <laughs> yes. No, 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 exactly. But, but it's just so, it's so 
obsessed with romantic relationships. And to me, that is tragic because we need everybody. We need our moms and our dads and our friends and our cousins and our aunts and our uncles and our little sisters. And we need our communities to thrive. Yeah. Some historian said, which I love the phrase, we put all our eggs into one romantic basket mm-hmm. and then assume that that person's going to be the it and all and you know whatever it is. It's inhuman that we do that to each mm-hmm. other. In a heterosexual relationship, especially in like a traditional context, you know, you put all your eggs in one romantic basket and then try to embody yeah. those stereotypes where where one person in that partnership is supposed to act out essentially not having the tools to meaningfully connect, like you were saying. Like mm-hmm. you're not supposed to act out any of the soft parts that are critical yeah. to connection. What I'm hearing you say is that all humans are wired to connect mm-hmm. and that we have yeah. those qualities. And we have those skills. It's skills, right? Well, and that's actually what I'm curious about because I think I have this idea that, and I think I said this even in my response, is that because boys and then men are meant to deny these soft parts that are needed for connection, that over the years of denying that, that they don't have then the skills to do that. And I'm curious what your research has shown in terms of like, I know, you know, I've listened to the interviews that you've had or the clips that you've had from interviewing the same boys over a long period of time. And is it that those skills are still there under the surface? They just haven't necessarily been cultivated with permission yeah. that can change? Or how do you get from this disconnected point to a yeah. connected point? Well, this is the thing that I think is so fascinating is that basically we have it throughout our lives, but there are some people that feel better able to express it. And then what happens is that of course it gets nurtured. So at this point, my relational intelligence is pretty strong yeah. uh, because it's been reinforced in all sorts of ways. Also, by the way, if we're going to talk about heterosexual relationships just for a second, women are often in relationship with men are the caretakers, emotional caretakers. So you're fostering your relational intelligence skills in your relationship. And so, yes, our skills, oftentimes grown women's skills, are more sort of advanced than male skills. Absolutely. You know, men who grow up in particular cultures, et cetera. But the idea is that what we see in our research, and I see in my classroom too, is some of the most so-called covered over boys, the sort of stereotypic boys in my classroom that are wearing the athletic jersey, they're on the soccer team at NYU, they're definitely identified very boyish, Mm -hmm. and they present very boyish, meaning they don't want to have any kind of soft conversations in class, et cetera. But once you start actually scaffolding it, their five-year-old capacities come pouring out. Mm -hmm. When you present a safe context your natural capacities come out. And then it has to be nurtured for that to get even better. So I'll give you one story that's helpful. So I'm in a classroom of 25 boys. These are 12-year-old boys. And they read something from Deep Secrets. And it's a really soft passage. The boy, I think, says, I love him so much. I can't live without him. I don't know what I do. You know, I don't know if it's human nature or not, but I love him. Mm-hmm. And the boys all start cracking up. Okay, and I know why they're cracking up. I've been with boys enough to know why they're cracking up. (laughs) And I said, why are you laughing? And they won't tell me. And I said, no, no, come on, come on, tell me why you're laughing. And then one kid says, well, the dude sounds gay. And I said, okay, well, I don't look at sexuality. That's not part of what I do in my studies. Uh, But let me just tell you something. 
and they're all listening. It's very intense. And I said, 80% of the boys that I've interviewed, and by this time, it's thousands of boys over many decades, sound like that at some point during their teenage years. And all the boys said, for real? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, that's what teenage boys sound like. Because remember, they're 12. Yeah. What do you think happened in the classroom at that moment? Once I normalized it. They opened up and were a little bit yeah. more honest. Beth, basically what happened is that they started talking about their friendships, their desire for friendship. Two boys even started talking about how the other boy hurt his feelings, mm -hmm. that he had broken up. They literally used the word broken up because he had hurt his feelings and he didn't want to be his friend anymore. And they were outing themselves in the classroom with a classroom of 25 boys, mm. of 12-year-olds. And so I realized all I did by that 80%, mm -hmm. I didn't do it consciously, by the way. All I did, though, is I normalized it. And once yeah. you normalize it, boys' relational expression, emotional expression, their intelligence comes out. They start asking questions of each other. It's like you just got to provide a, a space so when we get to the part of the interview where you talk about solutions, I want to talk about the, the simple fact of normalizing it. Uh, but I do want to make sure we cover this idea that the assumptions we have about who's good at it and who's not good at it is getting in the way, yeah. right? Because I'm just telling you, those 12-year-old boys, I'll give you an example of questions they've asked me, okay, when they have to interview me in this intervention we do in the school called The Listening Project. This is, again, another group of 12-year-old boys, because I work in a lot of boys' schools. I, I mean, now I work in all sorts of schools, but I used to work in a lot of boys' schools. They're interviewing me, and I say, you can ask anything you want. I want them to learn the art of interviewing, listening with curiosity. We call it transformative interviewing. And so I said, you can ask me any question. So the boys decide to ask me, am I married? <laughs> it's fascinating for a yeah. lot of different reasons why that would be their first question. If I had time, I would have asked them why you asked me that. Because yeah. I'm just curious about why they go there in that particular way. And remember, I'm probably at that point the age of their grandmother. So it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I say no. And then they say, have you ever been married? And I say yes. And they start laughing. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why I thought that was brilliant, because it revealed their relational intelligence. They knew I was messing with them by giving by yes or no answers. Mm -hmm. So when I said no, and then I said yes, because I told them I was going to be difficult, they knew immediately that what I was doing, I was messing with them mm -hmm. by not elaborating. Yeah. And that, I'm just saying, that's relational intelligence, right? They got that I was messing with them in my responses. They didn't just take it as a fact when people do yes, no, which is not really an answer, because you obviously don't just want a yes, no. So then their next question, are you, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. I'm ready. The kid in the back of the room raises his hand. This is all going very quickly. It's not slow. Yeah. And I said, I was divorced. And he said, do you still love your ex-husband? And mm -hmm. then the next question is, when you're getting interviewed, you have to answer genuinely. You can't answer, like, do the adult thing of, like, pretending, you know, whatever, that you don't have feelings. Yeah. So I answered <laughs> honestly. And then their next question from another kid, you've got to imagine 12-year-old boys. Yeah. You know, does he know that and how does he know? And then mm. do your kids know and how do they know? Mm. These are just random questions I've gotten over decades of listening to boys, when you ask them about real questions, girls too, of course, they blow your mind with the depths of their questions. So all I'm saying, Lizzie, to respond to your original question, that's relational intelligence to understand that it's not just I'm divorced and then next question, 
It's, do you still love your ex-husband? Which to me is such a powerful question because it recognizes, do you get what I'm saying, Lizzie? It recognizes the complexity of relationships that even if you break up, you might still love the person, right? And to me, that is human intelligence that we can figure out that you can break up and still love someone. And so to me, it's it's not that it was a vulnerable question. To me, it's a brilliant question and reflects a deep understanding of relationships at 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Right. And the permission to be curious in that space of them interviewing you and you kind of making them work for it in a way that they yeah. their cu- real curiosity kind of paired with that emotional, yeah. relational intelligence to come up with yeah. questions that brought up answers that were rewarding for that process for them, yeah. I imagine. Absolutely. And I want to underscore something you just said because it's super important. The, the having them having to work for it was an important part of it. The reason why is if they just asked, are you married? And I just went on for 10 minutes, you know, no, I'm not married anymore. I'm divorced and blah, blah, blah. And I'm now in a relationship. Blah, blah, blah. You're actually not nourishing their relational intelligence mm. because what's going to happen is they're going to space out. They're going to yeah. space out. They're not going to be particularly interested in what you're saying because they're not going to really follow it. It's not going to be about their questions. It's going to be about me ranting on, on, and on, and on, right, about my relationships, et cetera. That is what gets in the way of connection, that moment. Because what we do, for those of us who are free to speak about our feelings, right, who feel more comfortable, is someone will ask us a starting question. Yeah. And then we'll go on for 10 minutes. Yeah. And then we'll wonder why the other person looks like they're spacing out. <laughs> and they're spacing out. No, no, really. I mean, it just happens all the time. Yeah. And then yep. we don't feel listened to. But I'm going to blame it on all of us, okay? I'm going to blame it on all of us. The reason we're not listened to is we're driving the conversation rather than letting their curiosity drive the conversation. What do you want to know about me? Mm-hmm. Right? And then... If I say I'm divorced, what do you want to know? Because yeah. maybe you care nothing about my divorce. Maybe you care why I got married. I don't know. I mean, you know, whatever it is. And this relates to the letter. Curiosity is key, and it has to be driven by the person asking the question. Because otherwise, when you get in the driver's seat, when you're responding to someone, you're not following their curiosity. You're following your own curiosity mm-hmm. about what's fascinating about you. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So to me, relational intelligence is saying, I'm talking to you, Lizzie, or you, Beth, and I'm thinking, what do you want to know about me? Yeah. Right? What do you want to know about me? And then, and then, this is the this is the hard part for everybody. I tell you for everybody, what do I want to know about you? Yeah. Because if you only want to know about me and Beth, you think I don't care about you and I don't care what you think, you're not going to be particularly interested in me. Mm -hmm. Because why would you listen to me if I didn't listen to you? And we are fundamentally not following that basic rule of relationships, that it cannot be one way. And there's a little bit of, in all our relationships, I'm not going to pick on anybody. I see that in almost all my students. I see it in my own relationships. I see it in my kids' relationships. I hear it a little bit in the letter too. I hear it all over the place of sort of, this is what I need without reflecting it back into the big five-year-old question of that letter. What do you think the big five-year-old question of that letter is in relation to the brother? Why? Yeah, why? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Why did he move towards a spiritual movement? Why did he decide to disconnect from his family? That's what I would encourage people because everybody knows that story. So I'm I'm not picking on anybody. I really want to make that clear to your listeners. I'm just saying 
everybody has to say when someone's acting disconnected, hostile, pulling away, retreating, you got to figure out that there's a reason for that. And mental health is not a reason. Mm. Mental health is the consequences of the disconnection, mental mm. health problems, I mean. Yeah. It's not the reason. You don't pull away because you're depressed. You're depressed because you don't feel connected, don't feel listened to, don't feel anybody sees you or hears you. So you get depressed. And then what happens is that you then internalize, right, all the things, nobody's listening to me and nobody's going to listen to me. And so then you retreat. But mental health is not a reason for the disconnection. It is a consequence of the disconnection. So really appealing to the whys of when people, when people are feeling sad, when yeah. people are feeling anxious, when people are feeling lonely. People can have a lot of friends and feel lonely. Why is that? Yeah. Right? What's happening in their friendships that make them feel lonely? People can feel lonely in a marriage. Everybody knows that. Women oftentimes more than men feel lonely in marriages. Mm -hmm. I just think we got to think more like a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean it. I mean, I'm, I'm being quite serious yeah. in that sense of wonder about other people. And then that's the basis of all human connection. It's funny. It's not funny. It's just like confirming what you're bringing up about curiosity and that question why, because you're not the first guest who has said, lean into curiosity, lean into asking why. Fantastic, yeah. At this point, I'm like, I need to tattoo this on me. <laughs> like, I need to make sure yeah. I can see this and yeah. just remember mm -hmm. to ask why. Because the other thing that I was thinking about as you were um, relaying your answer was how many conversations I've had with friends where they've gone on dates and they said, well, the person didn't ask any questions to me. Yeah. Yeah. I only yeah. asked questions. And it's a dynamic where like, the other person was like, ooh, somebody wants to know me, wants to, you know, feel seen, heard or whatever. Yeah, of course. And they may not have that normally in their life, but then they yeah. didn't have the self-awareness to reciprocate back to the other person. And so regardless yeah. if it's romantic or friendship. Or friend. The, reci yeah. the reciprocity is important yeah. to yeah. lobby it back or ask a different question. Be curious. It's not just important, it's essential for the connection is all I'm going to say. Well, and kind of building off of this idea that like, do boys and men have the skill set? Was that fostered? And understanding that kind of going back to that piece, one of the things that I heard while you were talking is also like, do we have expectations for boys and men to hold up that side of the connection? Yeah. Or yeah. are we yeah. through kind of your example of like, they asked me one question and I gave a 10 minute answer. Are right. we managing every connection and conversation so much that mm. they don't leave space for someone else to grow into it and be a part of it too? Okay. I'm going to say something very controversial. Please. I'm always saying that this is what I've learned from listening to young people. So it's not my opinion what I'm about to say. So oftentimes the difference in curiosity is between girls and women are more question askers and boys and men are less often to be the question askers. And I would actually say men, because boys can be beautiful question askers mm -hmm. when given the chance. And their five-year-old selves are just like girls, just like everybody else. But let's just compare men and women for a second. So women are more likely to ask questions than men. It's a known thing. What happens is, as exactly what Beth is saying, you get this in the literature too. You, you read articles about this all the time, that women are sick of being the emotional therapist, the therapist, the organizer, the lover, the everything for their partner, and it not being reciprocated. And, and that includes asking questions. So this is the controversial part. 
What I think, weirdly enough, that has happened in part because of my research, actually, is that there is a new movement that we are recognizing, and I'm not saying this snarkily, I really mean it, that boys and men have emotions too, right? That they are just as emotional as everybody else. And men are interpreting it, right, within a power structure where they're seen as more important than their partner if they're in a heterosexual relationship, is I want to talk about my feelings. So the idea is the relationship becomes, let me talk about my feelings, right? Without saying, what are your feelings? Right. Mm. What are your feelings? This must be difficult for you to be dealing with my depression, mm. right? So that you're having a lot of depressed husbands, boyfriends, fathers, you are having a lot of depression. You're having a lot of depressed women too, but I'm just saying this depression and then the expectation that the women in their life will be their therapist and help them with their depression. And they don't turn the men, they don't turn to their friends, they turn to their partner, they turn to their mothers, they turn to their right women in their life. That's an enormous burden for women. It is an enormous burden for women and it creates anger People leave marriages, women leave marriages. We, we know this in the literature because of that. And so what men have done within a power structure that leaves their emotions, not only are we admitting that they have emotions, which is a good thing, but we're saying that your emotions somehow matter more than your partner's. Mm-hmm. And you see it in male friendships too, to some degree, is that they want to talk about their emotions. Even these men's group, I sometimes see it you know, suggested in these men's group. Everybody wants to talk about their feelings but nobody's actually asking questions about other people's feelings. And when you talk about your feelings and that's all you're interested in, come on, you can't form a connection on that. Sure. And the other thing is, is we have to realize that you know, sharing our emotional feelings, we think it's the essential root of connection. It's not. It's actually learning from another person about their experiences and then learning about yourself through their experiences. If I tell you, Lizzie, that you know, I've had trauma, various things in my childhood, and I reveal to you the various traumas, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, we think as a culture that will make you feel close to me. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you feel close to me. It mm-hmm. may make me feel close to you, right. but you're not gonna feel closer to me because I shared some painful story. What's gonna make you close to me is to say, hey, hey, Lizzie, tell me about your own childhood. Tell me the things that were great about it. Tell me the things that you value, not just trauma questions. Tell me the things that you care about. Why do you care about them? Tell me about a time you felt listened to. Why did that make you feel listened to? And then you ask me those same beautiful five-year-old curious questions. Even though you broke up with your best friend, do you still feel a sense of love? Why do you feel a sense of love to your best friend even though you're no longer friends? Like those will make you feel close to me. Not you dumping And I say dumping a little bit harshly, but that sense that it's all about me. And if I tell you about me, then you'll like me. Right. The idea that just being vulnerable and bringing that and leaving that with the other person is meant to build connection. But that's not actually the the formula for it. And the formula for it is actually potentially easier. (laughs) It's following that earlier instinct to be curious and that 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 connection can be built off of being vulnerable over time as you are getting there in the questions that you're asking each other and how you're being curious in those relationships. And I do want to make sure we have a chance to talk about kind of where we're talking about here is the 
solutions piece. So yeah. I know we said at the beginning of the conversation, we want to make sure that we get there. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of those pieces that we've already covered. Just the ideas of being yeah. curious, of having permission, of being in safe spaces. What is maybe like one one thing that you would want listeners to know in terms of addressing this broadly across identities and genders and specifically for boys and men? Yeah. So I would say two things. Actually, it's going to end up being four things or okay. something. <laughs> right. um, I, I was trying to boil it down, but I could never boil it down. Um, so I would say the first thing is to recognize that we live in a culture, as I said, I referred to it as a boy culture, that doesn't value relationships. And when they do value relationships, it's only romantic relationships. It's not friendships. We don't nurture our relational natural relational skills. We don't nurture our natural emotional skills. We're in an entire culture that doesn't nurture what we need to have connections. Mm -hmm. So we got to recognize that so that we don't start blaming men or blaming women or blaming whomever mm -hmm. for the problem. That's why I don't like the term toxic masculinity, because it suggests that somehow it's men's fault. No, it's an entire culture that doesn't value what we want most as humans, which is each mm -hmm. other. We just don't value it. So in such a culture, it's hard, okay? So that's the first thing. We have to understand we live in a culture that clashes with our nature. It values things that go against what we want most want as humans. So in that culture, that means you have to be disruptive. You have to be disruptive of the culture. And that means you have to start actually engaging in what we know as a five-year-old creates connection, which is that sense of wonder in each other and nurturing it any way possible. Do it today. Ask someone a question. And I would say the third thing is, remember, not all questions are equal. So not all questions are good questions. So those card games we have about question asking card games, many of the questions are kind of lame. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they are. They are. I mean, they're trying yeah. to be funny and, you know, et cetera. Even the questions that aren't supposed to be funny you know, who would you like to most have dinner with? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not, okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, the questions have to be questions that people actually want to be asked and that are burning questions for them. And and I would say the other thing, it has to be questions that you're genuinely curious about, not s some question that you read about and you thought, oh, that's a good question because it's popular. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever it is, it has to come from internal. You're looking at a person. What do you want to know? Mm -hmm. You know, what do you want to know about that person? So the idea of engaging in an entirely new way to disrupt a culture that doesn't value curiosity, it doesn't value and certainly not interpersonal curiosity. And so to disrupt it, just start doing it. The final thing I would say, because you know there's going to be like 10 other things, but I'll limit to the final <laughs> thing, is you, you got to normalize the desire. Yeah. Right? It's not a girly desire. It's not a gay desire, whatever we say in this sort of homophobic way. It's a human desire to want relationships, to want intimacy, to want emotional intimacy. We have the skills already within us mm. to address the crisis of connection. Mm. And now we just need to tap into them mm. and do it. Mm. And so it's not like we have to teach it. Yeah. We have it naturally. Mm. So I'm telling a very optimistic story, which is it's not like we have to go out and now do you know workshops. Mm -hmm. I mean, workshops can nurture it, but I'm just saying... We have it. Yeah. We could do it right now, right? In terms of nurturing our, our, our capacity to, to look at another person with wonder. And that we find in our research makes people feel listened to, seen, heard. And then that person, this is the kicker for all the men listening to this, you got to reciprocate. Yeah. 
You got to give it back to your friend. You got to ask the questions. I think that was about eight things. <laughs> Look, honestly, <laughs> we'll take it. all of them. We, yes. um, yeah. we have so many more questions, obviously, but we will have to hold them for later yes. <laughs> when we bring you back when we bring on you the back podcast. yes okay good yeah great thank you i would love to come back yeah, yeah thank you back. so much for joining us truly a dream to have you here yeah. and to get to talk about this story from a variety of lenses and bring it back to just the basis of connection that we all have the capacity to do we all have the desire to do yeah. and that there is an optimistic view of us moving forward and doing that so thank you so much for sharing that with us Please be sure, listeners, to check out more of Dr. Wei's work through the links in the show notes and be on the lookout for her book, Rebels with a Cause, Reimagining Boys, Ourselves, and Our Culture, which is coming this spring. Is that right? July. July this summer. And we'll be sure yeah. to keep you in the loop on that as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Wei, for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And thank you for doing the podcast. The more we can spread the message, the better. And, and podcasts like yours are essential to spreading the message. So thank you for the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. We want to end this episode by hearing from our amazing storyteller again. We asked him what he thought he missed from this misconnection. He said, I've missed the big moments and the small moments that I feel would have been better with my brother there. When I think about those moments in my life, I wish he was there to help me celebrate or process or whatever I needed. I know my brother would have met the moment in a way that others didn't. He would still be my closest male friend if he was still living in California, but was living a, quote, normal life. We also believe that for every misconnection, there can be something gained. Our storyteller said, I've learned how to advocate for myself, how to speak up for what I need, and how to set boundaries. I have a much lower tolerance for relationships that don't make me feel good than I have had in the past. I think the hole that my brother has left in my life has motivated me to continue to seek out connections, even if they don't feel as authentic or natural as they did with him. I still want that. This is Miss Connections. Thanks for listening. I'm Elizabeth Windham. And I'm Elizabeth Via. Special thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Niobe Way, and our truly amazing storyteller. You know who you are. This episode's story essay was written by Charlotte Beach. The story was voiced by our lovely storyteller. Misconnections is co-hosted, produced, and edited by us, the Elizabeths, Elizabeth Via and Elizabeth Windham. Our theme music is Feeling by Danielle Misto. Have a misconnection story to share with us? Email us at Elizabeths at misconnections connectionspod.com and follow rate and review on apple Podcasts, spotify and youtube 